All right, good morning, people of God and visitors to the family of God. We hope you'll consider joining the family. It's a good family. There's a lot of love in this family, even if it's not perfect. That was a joke. You're a tough crowd. That's where we are already. Good to be here as we return to the book of Kings. Now, we've got a gripping set of texts to explore this morning, so hang on to your armrest because I don't want anyone to fall out of their seat, okay? When we started the series last week, we said that the books of Kings, just like other histories in the Old Testament, uh, are narratives about past events told with a view to their present relevance. So keep that in mind. In other words, that means that the book of Kings is didactic literature. It's, it's literature that's given to teach us. God wants to use these books to help you and me grow spiritually. Don't let that slip far from your minds. Now last week, in those very exciting, scandalous texts that we looked at, we discovered two types of wisdom in conflict. That's what those narratives, chapters 1, 2, and 3, want us to recognize. Chapters 1 and 2 are plastered with the unpleasant activities of wisdom from below, and it's not pretty. Wisdom from below, says one commentator, is highly unenlightened and self-serving. It's animated by ruthless pragmatism. It's the wisdom of real politic. And in its wake, there are many casualties. This, this wisdom from below is not inclined to forgiveness or peaceableness. It resorts to violence as the quick solution for the problems and obstacles of life. Now, in the case of young Solomon, he got the wisdom from below from his father, David. That was part of his inheritance. And we saw that David, while he was filled with the jargon of religiosity, he said the right things. His faith was actually, in practice, compromised. David was more than willing to disregard God's law when it suited his own interests and purposes. And if David does one thing well at the end of his life, he positions Solomon to be a chip off the old block. And we saw in chapter 2 that Solomon was just like a little sponge. He soaked up all of that dark wisdom from his father David. He put it into action and heads rolled. Wasn't pretty. Along the way, however, we discerned God's sharp displeasure with all of this, this entire state of affairs. We also saw that despite the fact that Solomon tries to link his actions to God, he tries to dignify his activity by appealing to God, the writers of First and Second Kings will not be duped. God has nothing to do with any of this. In fact, when God looks into this horrific scenario, another proverb from the book of Proverbs probably comes to his mind. It says this, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is demise. Now, within that deeply troubling status quo of the house of David, now the house of Solomon, we were very relieved to read about God's intervention in chapter 3. God has something special in mind for Israel. He wants Israel to be a new type of society, a new type of humanity. And it's very clear from chapter 1 and 2 that if that is going to happen, God's going to have to offer some serious help. And so he does. In chapter 3, Solomon has a profound encounter with the Lord. He receives a gift from God, the gift of wisdom. Now, clearly, that is a different type of wisdom that he got from his father David. It's a different type of wisdom. We said what God gave to Solomon in this encounter can be called wisdom from above. And when we left off last week, we were wondering what was going to happen. Would Solomon embrace this new gained wisdom? What would this wisdom mean in practice, right? That's what we care about. What does it mean in practice? Will things be different? Today, we're going to begin to find out. 
If you've got your Bibles, feel free to keep them open. It's easier to hear God's Word if we see it as well. In chapter 3 and 4, we get some encouragement. Whew, thank goodness. In today's text, Solomon is on a honeymoon with his new wife, Lady Wisdom, from above, and for the time being, he's remaining faithful to her. <laughs> to come back next week to find out how the rest of the marriage goes. <laughs> Solomon's marching to a different and to a better beat. And as we'll see, genuine wisdom is not the cunning, slick ability to get your way, but rather it's wisdom that's corresponding to an orientation to God, God's heart, God's ways. In fact, that's probably the big theme of today's verse, genuine wisdom involving orientation towards God's heart and God's ways. And 1 Kings wants to celebrate this and to commend it to us. It does this by giving some very interesting representative examples of the output, the payout of wisdom from above. And we're going to highlight and unpack these briefly. There's three to note. The coordination, the clemency, and the case. You can thank me for that alliteration after the sermon. Coordination, the clemency, and the case. Okay, we'll begin with the coordination. Let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Good job reading those. There's a lot of tricky names in there. And if some of you are looking for baby names, look no further. Chapter 4 has got plenty of them. No one else has those. King Solomon was king over all of Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zodak, was the priest, and Elihoreph uh, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army, and Zodak and Abiathar were the priests, and Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers, and dot, dot, dot. What on earth is the significance of this otherwise boring report? It represents new order. And it's an order, as we'll see, that invites widespread, broadly enfranchised well-being. Solomon is a masterly coordinator. He's an excellent organizer. That becomes clear from what we read in verse 20 of chapter 4. This is what it says. The land of Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, and they ate and they drank and they were all happy. Wisdom from above labors to achieve unity and harmony socially, politically, economically, through creative and skilled organization, not brute force and violence. Now, at this particular time, when David and Solomon were ruling, Israel was, was made up of 12 different tribes. And suffice it to say, those 12 tribes did not always, or even often, get along very well. There were lots of petty rivalries, there were territorialism, and the result was feuds and strife. And who suffers in that type of situation? The masses. That's who often suffers in those types of situations. It was true then, it's true now. When wisdom from above enters into this situation, it doesn't seek a solution through violence or coercion, but rather by dealing with the root causes behind all those feuds and all that strife. Things like economic stability, prosperity, fair systems of justice, good political organization, and devolved rather than dictatorial power. And that is precisely what King Solomon, out of his newfound wisdom, is doing. It's an answer to the prayer he prayed in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He said, God, help me govern this multitude of people, your people. Help me, I need help governing them. With God's help, Solomon is up to the challenge. And the result is that all the people, all the people, ate and drank and were happy. 
That was never experienced in David's time. Wasn't experienced in King Saul's time before David. David yearned for it, but the tactics that David used to govern undermined the very thing that he yearned for. Now, shining out of these otherwise tedious administrative details of chapter 4 is a stunning contrast, a contrast between Solomon and Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Egypt. We talked about him last time. See, Solomon's new wisdom is allowing him to configure a social order that will benefit the welfare of the vast majority of people. Pharaoh's system, the pyramidal economy of Egypt, was very adept at ensuring the prosperity and welfare of a few, a few people at the top, especially Pharaoh. And truth be told, it doesn't really take that much savvy to take care of the welfare of, of a few people, right? But setting up a society where the multitudes prosper, that's impressive. That's impressive, isn't it? That's what Solomon's done here. This is what God, is, this is what God wants. This is what wisdom from God is enabling. The result of this, the cumulative result, is what I call a Proverbs 29, verse 2 scenario. This is what that verse says. It says, when the king thrives, the people rejoice. And literally it means, when the king grows wheat, the people celebrate. That's what the Hebrew in that proverb means. Why? Why do they celebrate when the king thrives, when the king grows wheat? Because the king has a vision for the common good, and he shares one scholar says this, Solomon's coordination and organization does not suppress, but rather enhances the flourishing of his people. See, under Solomon, people don't sit in the shadows of pyramids that were built on exploitation. They sit in the shadow of their own fig tree and their own little vine. And those are the images of the good life in the Old Testament in Israel. Every family thrives, not just the royal family. Kings is showing us how Solomon's actions as a, as a governor are radiating God's heart and God's wisdom, and the world is becoming a better place. It's good. Okay, let's now consider the act of clemency. Back to chapter 4, this time just verse 4, and in fact, just the last clause, just the, the second part, very small little snippet. It says this, Zodak and Abiathar were priests. The word of the Lord. Now, that trivial little observation is actually brimming with significance. Back in chapter 2, verse 27, Abiathar got deposed by Solomon. He got put away. He was accused of colluding with Solomon's brother, Adonijah, to steal the throne. Solomon actually expresses a desire to kill this priest, but he refrains, and he puts him under house arrest. That's, that's exactly like what Solomon did to Shimei in chapter 2, as those who were here last week will remember. He, he put Shimei under house arrest, right? But that house arrest proved to be temporary, didn't it? In the end, Shimei got a bullet in the back of his head. And for that very reason, we would expect a similar fate for this priest, Abiathar. Yet here and now in chapter 4, we encounter a remarkable turnaround. Abiathar has been reinstated. Solomon is learning a new way to deal with his perceived enemies. See, there's more than one way to deal with an enemy. You can kill them or you can make them a friend. You can make them a friend. St. Augustine once said this, There's nothing that so surely trounces the enemy than our acting mercifully. That's what Solomon's done here. That's what Kings wants us to see. This tells us that there has been a big change in his heart. He's negotiating threats and obstacles in a very different way than he used to with wisdom from below. 
and he's doing it in a way that's no longer adding to everything that's ugly and polluted and warped in the world. The clemency. All right, let's turn now to the case. This is hands down the most intriguing segment of today's text. And if you've ever read 1 Kings, you probably read this story if you didn't read any others. Let's look at verse 16 through 22. Then two prostitutes came to the king and they stood before him. And one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I, we live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. And there was no one else with us in the house. There were only two of us. And that woman's son died in the night because she laid on him. And then she rose at midnight. She took my son from beside me. And while I was sleeping, she laid him at her breast and laid the dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. When I looked closely in the morning, it wasn't the child that I had born. And the other woman said, no, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. And the first said, no, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. This is a very interesting case for a variety of reasons. Now, in the first place, you may wonder what these people are doing before Solomon. I mean, don't kings screen their phone calls? Right? How'd they even get in there? And the answer is in the details. Verse 18, there was no one else around. In other words, there are no witnesses. And the normal protocol for adjudication, according to Deuteronomy 19, is that you have to have witnesses. And since there are none, it seems that this particular case has been bumped right up to the high court, the king's throne. But in addition to that, this is a particularly tricky case, very difficult case, right? And therefore, requires incredible wisdom. It's, it's a case that falls out of the normal rules. Let me explain. When we have a case about custody for a baby, right, it, it often involves the father and the mother. And if it's a baby, we know what to do. Like, who should keep the baby, right? Who? The mother. Did everybody, are you all awake? <laughs> I know my voice can put people to sleep a little bit. Yeah. The mother. That's right. Does anyone, yeah. At least in this country. I don't know. Maybe another. But this is a case with two women and a baby. So what do you do? The solution isn't obvious. The rules don't quickly apply, right? Now, most of the discourse here comes from the complainant. The respondent doesn't actually have much to say. The respondent just says one thing in verse 22. She denies the accusations, right? And when all the arguments are laid to rest, there's an impasse, right? There's no such thing as genetic testing at this time. What will Solomon Holmes do? What will he do? Look at verse 24. He picks up his sword. Solomon's done that before, hasn't he? Picked up his sword before, but this time he's going to use it in a different way. He's going to use that blade not in the service to ruthless self-interest, but for the sake of true justice. A new purpose has dawned. One scholar puts it this way, Solomon's sword has now become what swords are in the hands of God, the instrument of right judgment. Listen up now. The writers of Kings decided to report this incident because it allows us to see something. It allows us to see that Solomon's fresh wisdom, his new wisdom, is protecting rather than subverting justice. In other words, Solomon's sword is no longer squelching justice. It's fostering it. It's preserving it. It's good for the kingdom. The proof's in the pudding. Look at verse 25 and 26. And the king said, divide the living child in two. Give one half to this one and one half to the other one. And the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned, Lord, give her the living child, and do not put him to death. But the other woman said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. 
Solomon has no intention of killing this child. His aim is to provoke a reaction that will establish justice, and that is exactly what comes to pass. See, Solomon knows about something about how people work, about the web of human relationships and the patterns of human bonding. He is attuned to how God created us. And in this case, he knows that the true mother would rather be deprived of her child than have her child deprived of its life. That remarkable little insight allows the king to do justice and allows him to do justice with wisdom in a situation where the rules don't quickly and easily apply. It's a genius move. It tells us something about true wisdom, right? True wisdom is wisdom from above is never you know, outside and divorced from God's law and God's rules, but it's not simply the application of them either. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Now, as we reflect on the coordination, the clemency, and the case, there's a macro message here. Big, big message. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. There's some big significance, the full significance of everything that's transpired in these two chapters. You remember in chapter 3, Solomon prayed for wisdom from above. You can go read that prayer in chapter 3, verse 9. And the exact terms of that prayer were these terms. Lord, I need some discernment for good and evil. Guess what? The Hebrew, that language in that prayer, that's the same language used about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Something profound is being communicated here. Just like Adam and Eve, Solomon craved the wisdom that comes from the tree, that the tree represented, right? He knows he needs it. That's why he prays for it in chapter 3. But he asked for it. He asked for it. He doesn't reach up and snatch it. He waits for God to reach down and give it. He humbles himself before God, and as a result, he is exalted. He is gifted. That's the secret of the universe, according to the Bible. That's the key to salvation. Have you ever heard that? In this way, Solomon, in these chapters, is being depicted for us as a new and improved Adam. He's a sign of creation being redeemed and of a new way of life for God's people. One commentator, Peter Lightheart, puts it like this. Israel is called to be an Adamic race, a race in the spirit of what Adam was intended. And Solomon in these chapters is the chief exemplar of that calling. Bit of a dense statement, but you get the gist. By the way, this is why at the very end of chapter 4, we read that Solomon was very well versed in the things of nature. This is what it says. It says, Solomon knew all about things from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He knew about the beasts and the birds and the reptiles and the fish. That was the original task of Adam and Eve, to name and classify, to add good order to the world. That's the message here. And the result of this is flourishing, right? Under Solomon, Israel is becoming a utopia of peace and harmony and safety and joy. All the qualities of chapter 1 in Genesis 1 and 2 in the book of Eden, in the book of Genesis 1 and 2. My brain gets things backwards sometimes, sorry. Here's some serious enlightenment. Are you being enlightened? Now, at the end of last week's sermon, I suggested that the higher wisdom... The wisdom from above that, God, that Solomon gets from God is something that God wants all of us to receive. All of us, right? That's why the book of James, chapter 1 in the New Testament says, pray for wisdom if you need it. Pray for wisdom from above. We need what Solomon has. Solomon himself recognized the common human need for wisdom. That's why he wrote the book of Proverbs. It's the greatest book of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It was a gift to us. 
Now, what I'm leading to right here now is getting us to the heart of what the books of Kings are for, right? We said earlier, I said at the very beginning, these are narratives about past events told with a view to their present relevance. Today, the question of relevance is the question of wisdom. That's what we're going to come to terms with in closing. And there's just two things I want to highlight here. Number one, why we desperately need wisdom. And number two, how do we get it? Why we desperately need wisdom and how do, how do we get it? Why we desperately need it. If you haven't yet, then soon enough you're going to experience an acute need for wisdom. Now just think of all the situations and the decisions where the rules don't apply. To keep dating someone. What type of career to pursue, right? Whether to take a certain job, whether to get married to that person, how to use your money, how to deal with a difficult person, how to sort out messes that other people make, how to die well. You need wisdom for those situations. There's no straightforward black and white rule for all of those decisions. Now, one of the greatest scholars of wisdom in the Old Testament, a guy called Gerhard van Rod, what a name, this is how he defines wisdom in the Old Testament. He says, wisdom is competence with regard to the complex realities of life. Our lives are continually blowing up in different ways, right? We do things we regret. We say things we wish we could take back. We misstep. We overstep. We understep. Why? Because we're not always competent with regard to the complex realities of this world. And we don't always know what to do in situations where the rules don't apply. doesn't matter if the rules are God's rules or some other rules. You're going to find yourself in situations where the rules don't apply. That's the scenario of 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon's, there's no rules for this situation. Solomon's got to issue a judgment of wisdom. Right? The rules of that time didn't cover this fork in the road. More than this, however, even when there are rules and guidelines, sometimes we still need wisdom. Even when we do have rules and guidelines. I mean, consider speech. One person said that these could, be, these could be called three rules for good speech. Good speech should be honest, fair, and well-intentioned. Yet even if you speak to someone else and you follow all three of those rules, you could still find yourself in regret. You, you might still wish you could take those words back, right? You shouldn't have said them then, Right? You shouldn't have said it at that moment or in that place, or you shouldn't have said it to that person when they were in that emotional or physical state. You acted with incompetence. It comes down to this. We need what Solomon has, and we modern people especially need it. Compared to other generations in times past, we have an infinitely larger number of forks in the road where the rules don't apply. We've got a superabundance of situations where there are no clear-cut rules, right? Why? Traditional cultures often made up your mind for you. You'll marry this person. You'll do this job. You'll live in this place. That's how it worked in traditional culture. That's not our situation. For us, all bets are off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One observer puts it like this. There has never been a people on the face of the earth, we modern people, that need wisdom more than we do. This is essential if we're going to participate in God's redemptive work in creation, if we're going to be part of the solution rather than the problem, like David was. So let's move on. How do we become wise? How do we become wise? How do we get it? If you've been sleeping, now's a good time to wake up. You're going to need what's coming here, okay? As we've said, 1 Kings 
recognizes that there's more than one type of wisdom on offer in the world, right? There's wisdom from below and there's wisdom from above. But at a deeper level, we need to perceive that Kings is actually written to expose counterfeit forms of wisdom. The underlying message of these chapters is that there's really just one type of true wisdom. It's wisdom from above, from God. That's what we need. How do we get it? The answer is in the text. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. We didn't read this today, but if you've got a Bible, flip to it. Then Solomon came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and he burned up offerings and peace offerings, and he made a feast for his servants. Solomon's the first person in the Old Testament to stand before the Ark like that. This detail is stuffed with force and meaning. On the front end of chapter 3, we read about Solomon worshiping at a different place. He was worshiping at what's called a high place, maybe on top of a hill or a mountain somewhere nearby. High places are always suspicious in the Old Testament, right? You never really know who's being worshipped at a high place. Maybe it's God, but maybe it's something else or somebody else. But here and now, at the end of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 3, we find Solomon worshipping before the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's a symbol for God's presence and covenant relationship and law given to the people of Israel. This detail is telling us that Solomon is now worshiping God exclusively. God has become the sole object of Solomon's awe and reverence. God is the one that Solomon pursues above and before all else. Here we find the source of true wisdom. You see, wisdom always has a source. And the source determines the nature and the structure of wisdom. Let me put it this way. Whatever your Lord is, that's going to be the source of your wisdom. Whatever your Lord is, that's going to be the source of your wisdom. And according to the Bible, if anything apart from God is your Lord, then you're actually acting in foolishness. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the perfect case study for this. Solomon's initial wisdom, the stuff he got from David, his father, the wisdom from below, that, that wisdom had a Lord. What was that, Lord? Can we discern that? The unity and security of the kingdom, the stability of the dynasty. That's what David worshipped. That's what David gave himself to religiously. That was his dying priority. And that Lord generated some wisdom. It was horrendous and harrowing. We read about it in chapter 2. But now in chapter 3 and 4, Solomon's Lord has changed and so he has a new wisdom, a better wisdom, a wisdom that is making ancient Israel into an utopia of sorts. As Solomon gives himself wholeheartedly to the one true God, wisdom, true wisdom is growing within. And here's the thing. Here's the thing to notice. As Solomon seeks first the Lord rather than the security of the kingdom, rather than his dynasty, guess what? The other things get added. The kingdom gets secure. It actually gets more than secure. God talked about that elsewhere. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek ye first my kingdom, and all the rest will be added to you. This story is illustrating that principle. Your Lord determines your wisdom, and the Lord God is the only source of true wisdom. In other words, God is the only master that's not going to drive us, knowingly or not, to exacerbate all that is wrong in the world, even in the midst of our own little lives. God's the only one who can truthfully illuminate the fiber of spiritual and moral reality. And he does that so he can break us out of the cycles of coercion and manipulation and self-reliance that are strangling his good creation. Those cycles are in our lives. We need to be broken out. We need true wisdom. That is the memo 
of these chapters. Are you getting it? Now, I realize some of you may have some misgivings at this point, right? You're comprehending what I'm saying here, but you're unsure about it because you're unsure about God. Who is this God that must become our Lord if we're to be truly wise, right? That's a fair question. In fact, that is the crucial question this morning, right? Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that we must seek and worship and follow if we are to gain true wisdom? Again, the answer's in the text. It's tucked within, but it's there. Let's go back briefly in closing to the the case involving the two women and the baby. Both of those women were willing to sacrifice. One wants to sacrifice the child. The other leaps to self-sacrifice. The true mother cries out. She'd rather sacrifice her dreams, her aspirations of motherhood, the life that she imagined, than have her child sacrificed. Friends, this is what's called a prophetic parable that reveals to us who God really is. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know how God operates, look no further. In the face of judgment for our utter foolishness, Jesus Christ looks at you and me the way that that mother, the true mother, looks at her child. The New Testament makes this astoundingly clear. Jesus stares into the fallout and the mess of human sinfulness and brokenness, and as he scrutinizes it with sorrow, all the handiwork of our wisdom from below, right? As he discerns the just consequences for it, what does he cry out? Don't ruin their lives, ruin mine. Don't tear them in two, tear me in two. I'll give up my joy and my hope so they don't have to give up theirs. I'll absorb this astounding loss because I can handle it and it would crush them. That's who God is. Lots of people say otherwise, but they don't know. Jesus does because Jesus is. Have you heard? Has that melted your heart? Are you seeing Jesus do this for you right now? Are you seeing what Jesus did for you? This is the reality that has to saturate us to the bones. And to the the degree that it does, we'll turn away from our other lords, and the world is going to become a better place because we're going to get God's wisdom. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, and let's pray.